the topic of this panel is new direction of social policy in China. And as you can see, we have a large group of speakers here today, so um, please now allow me to briefly introduce each and every one of them. From my right, um, the First Lady, Dr. Fang Lijie, Associate Professor at the Research Center of Social Policy at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Yang Wei, Research Associate in Health Economics at the University of Kent. Dr. Wang Jing, Assistant Professor also at the Research Center of Social Policy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Professor Arthur Hussein, Director of the Asia Research Center at LSE. Dr. Gerald Bloom, Co-Convener of the Health and Nutrition Cluster at the Institute of Development Studies. Mr. Liu Liao, Chairman of the China Next Foundation. And finally, I'll hand the stage over to the Chair of this panel, Professor of Social Policy at LSE, Professor David Piashot. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much and uh, welcome to this session on new directions for social policy in China. Uh, my um, only qualification to be here is that I've been at LSE since 1970, which is longer than most of you have been. Um, but uh, I, I've long had a fascination uh, with, with, with China that some of you may have watched Wolf Hall, which is uh, about Tudor England, uh, Henry VIII and his uh, many wives. Um, uh, that for Britain is an ancient civilization, but uh, um, not uh, in Chinese terms. Uh, the other thing that um, fascinates uh, anyone looking at China, apart from its uh, ancient civilization, is its uh, extraordinarily rapid uh, economic growth. Uh, as um, John Maynard Keynes foretold in the 30s, uh, output could rise exponentially, and uh, globally it has done so. Uh, poverty has been much reduced, but uh, inequality in many countries, and I think including China, has been increasing. Uh, so the challenge at the moment uh, in the world seems to me primarily one about social policy. Uh, to combine the production potential, which is being realized very rapidly, with the achievement of a harmonious and creative society. And that involves questions about the distribution of incomes, the distribution of uh, work in production, because there will always remain menial tasks which uh, are not very attractive. Not everybody has the uh, advantage that academics enjoy that, uh, of doing work which uh, uh, is, for the most part, uh, um, uh, fascinating and challenging, uh, and uh, with the added advantage of being paid, not terribly well, but being paid for doing it. Uh, but the distribution of, of uh, employment, um, uh, which some people are forecasting to be uh, a huge issue with the uh, onward march of uh, robots uh, like uh, Martians uh, um, portrayed by H.G. Wells in The War of the Worlds. These Martians uh, are going to put a whole lot of people out of work. Um, so how work gets distributed um, becomes and will become uh, a key question and one that uh, social policy is much involved in. Uh, 
and social policy is clearly involved with providing certain essential uh, resources for life, housing, health care, social care, whether it be the nurturing of small infants or the care of frail elderly people. So all those are issues uh, about what rights people should have and on the other side what responsibilities uh, they should have. Uh, some of you may have observed that in the UK we're having a general election. Uh, uh, the first casualty of uh, um, general elections is like the first casualty of war, namely the truth. Um, uh, but social policy is very central to uh, those issues. The National Health Service um, is said to be... Um, uh, a top priority for many people. Um, uh, it's been said that in Britain, uh, religious life declined, so the only belief system that remained was the National Health Service. Um, so, so in Britain, issues of social policy are pretty much uh, uh, central, and um, I, I would, would forecast with some confidence that they will rise up as become more and more important uh, for uh, government policy in China. Uh, any government has to legitimate itself in the eyes of uh, uh, the citizens, otherwise dissatisfaction uh, will, will rise. Um, for, for, for a degree of trust, there has to be some confidence that uh, the, the government is taking care of those it should take care of, and that, that raises all sorts of issues about uh, defining need uh, and how that need uh, is to be met. So uh, an attitude of uh, constructive criticism, of analysing what's uh, uh, going on, uh, looking at options for the future seem um, essential for um, finding a new direction for social policy in China. But. Um, there are intriguing questions, but you didn't come here to listen to me. We've got this all-star lineup that uh, uh, has been uh, outlined to you already. So we'll start with uh, um, uh, Fang Lijie, um, who's uh, happily at the London School of Economics now as Ford Foundation Fellow at the Asia Research Centre. And she's going to talk uh, about some aspects of health policy, elderly care, community development welfare regimes. She could go on all afternoon, but she's only got 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go there or yes. there? Whichever you like. Uh, thank you, Professor Pierschel. And good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming to our panel. Um, now I'd like to share some of my thoughts about uh, what's new happening in China. Uh, so actually, my presentation is uh, based on, uh, initi on, my, on our initiative research uh, of a project named The New Direction of, uh, in Social Policy of uh, New uh, Emerging Economies. It's uh, like a comparative study of uh, breaking uh, BRICS countries organized by UN Research Institute of uh, Social Development. Um, so, let's say what's new. 
and uh, okay, we'll see the background of the new change. So in China, um, every day there's everything happens. So we identified three kinds of uh, background factors which influence this uh, kind of new change more. Um, so the first one is the rapid trend of uh, population aging. The second is the huge amount of uh, migrants, and the third is the changing rule of the government. So let's say the first one. We can say um, in 2,000 years, China just stepped in the so-called Asian society, and uh, after that, uh, the the Asian population just grows faster and faster. Now we have uh, we have almost 10% population uh, aged 65. So the old age dependency rate is very high too. And the second one is uh, we have a very huge amount of uh, migrants. Um, there are more than 243 million migrant, uh, migrated in uh, 2013. And we can see most of them moved to like five provinces, Guangdong, Zhejiang, Shanghai, Jiangsu, and Beijing. All of them are in East China. And uh, the last one, let's say the changing rule of government. And okay, I think most of you must know that uh, in 2002, the the goal of social development just changed from the so-called centering on economic development to constructing a harmonious society. Um, along with this change, the the role of government just tra uh, transformed from the administrative government to service-providing government. Okay, so that which means more and more responsibilities. Uh, I mean, the government take more and more responsibilities on the so-called livelihood improvement, which makes the government tends to more to extend the very, uh, very much and uh, just like um, unlimited government. And let's see what happened in the uh, social welfare area. Um, in 1990s, it's more like an employment-based social insurance system, including the unemployment insurance, pension insurance for employees, urban employee medical insurance, all of them just based on the informal employment, uh, all in urban area. Um, but after 2002, just following the so-called harmonious society, and uh, a kind of universal social security system just began to be constructed, including new rural cooperative medical scheme, urban resident medical insurance, pension for rural and urban residents, as well as the minimum standards of living of uh, both rural and urban areas. Um, so, how to understand this two uh, decades development? I mean, it's obvious from 1990s to the beginning of uh, 21st century, it's 
changing from employment-based to citizen-based, which means um, almost everyone in China uh, is involved in a certain scheme of uh, pension and uh, social uh, and health insurance. Um, uh, even the, 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 the protection level is uh, not, not very high, uh, it's not enough, but the coverage just developed very quickly. But if we also see these two periods, um, they are both production centered. Even we can say, okay, even we can say it's a universal social security system, but most of them are still the protection against the econ economic risk related with the market reform. So what's the problem in that kind of uh, social welfare model? Uh, firstly, as I just mentioned, we are in an Asian society, as well as face a very huge amount of migrants. So the protection against economic risk is not enough um, because the elderly people need more health and social care. And uh, the migrant workers need training service, as well as um, they need some kind of service to integrate them in the immigrant society. So that's not only about money. Um, as I just mentioned, that on the other hand, um, the government is more and more unlimited, and most social services were delivered by uh, public sector under a very tight control. The social organization or the non-government organizations develop very little. So the state supply fell short of the growing demand for social services. And uh, furthermore, the role of government tends to be unlimited, which leads to more and more conflicts with citizens. Um, it's very interesting. It's very interesting because the demand of uh, residents' self-governance and the users' cooperative service delivery is not only from the resident and user side, but also the local authorities in some degree have, have very strong motive to make the local society more um, anonymous. So this something new happened. Um, the first shift is from social security construction to social service delivery. The second shift is from citizen-based and production-centered to be combined with the settlement-based. The third one is from unlimited government to plural participations. And uh, I mean, in the among these three shifts, the social service de delivery is a core. But the first problem we faced is uh, who deliver this social service because we don't have uh, in enough social organizations to deliver social services. So the first step is to do capacity building 
and the 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 government does support a lot to the development of uh, social organizations. Then we'll talk about what kinds of social organizations are we talking about. Because there are so many kinds of organizations, uh, when we talk about the one related with the social service, actually we are talking about these three types of organizations. The first one is uh, the one deliver social service directly. And the second and the third one, I mean the social work organizations in urban area and the rural village organizations in rural area are not the one deliver uh, social service directly, but they aimed to organizing and enabling users and residents to be involved in this uh, policy process through, the, through their work of the last two types of organizations. Users and residents are enabled not only to participate in the policy process, but also to cooperate to deliver services by themselves. It's in, in Chinese so-called zuoguanli, zuofuwu. So there's a lot of support from the government. Just as I mentioned, because the government wants the, the, the <coughs> resident and the users to share their responsibility of uh, uh, governance as well as the social, uh, social organizations to, to be part of the social service deliveries. Um, so in March 2013, the Chinese government decided to relax the tight control over social service providing NGOs and relabel them as social organizations. And also local authorities uh, support SOs by subsidizing them as well as purchasing service from them. So we can say the amount of uh, social organizations just grows very quickly. Uh, especially since 2011. Uh, in 2013, there are um, 547,000 social organizations, almost 10% more than the previous year. Um, so the last part is uh, how can we understand all this new change? Um, in Jude Howell's latest article, she mentioned some concepts very interesting. Um, she argued that the social organizations in, chi in China now um, are based on the so-called welfareist incorporation um, rather than the corporatism which means the relation between government, especially local authority and uh, uh, social organizations are more like a, is more like a partnership. Um, I mean, obviously, the growing of uh, competition may increase the efficiency of social services as well as users' rights. But on the other hand, according to, uh, to Howell's uh, conclusion, as the local authorities purchase more services from SOs, um, yes, the S SOs got bigger space to develop, but just with the price of their independence, um, they tend to move closer to government instead of users. 
So along with the, but if we think about the, the last two types of organizations we just mentioned, we can say along with, uh, through their work, along with the improvement of users' ability, users will influence these um, policy decisions more, will influence this uh, distribution of welfare resource a lot, which means maybe it would make the, the uh, social organizations move back a little. So, uh, in a long way, let's say the, okay, sorry. What's that? Sorry. <clears throat> and we, we, if, we, if we see the optimistic potential outcomes, um, I mean, the best goal we can achieve is um, maybe transforming from a market society now to a welfare society in the long future. And we, we, I mean, we um, heard a lot about the crisis of uh, so-called welfare states. Maybe we can jump over this step to a more active welfare system. So, um, as uh, Professor Pearshot mentioned in an article, uh, the welfare system should focus on social goals rather than on social services. In my opinion, when he mentions this, uh, I don't think he's uh, denying the rule of social services, but to emphasize the diversity of uh, social needs. So this kind of welfare system uh, characterized uh, with the uh, diversified social services as well as plural participations and responsibilities. But compared with the optimistic uh, outcomes, we have much more potential risks. Just as we are just at the beginning of this system, we just begin to do this capacity building. But we don't have a complete institution, such as uh, we don't have the financing scheme, we don't have the regulation rules, we don't have the participation way. So it's hard to say how can we achieve this, this in the future. Um, and also, in the long run, uh, multiply, there's a potential conflict of uh, governing logic between the so-called uh, Sorry, uh, it's a government. Uh, yeah, the, not governance. It between government and the civil society, especially through the capacity building process of uh, grassroots civil society. So we have just started. What will happen in the future? We hope it would be good. Thank you. Much. We move on to Dr. Jing Wang, uh, who's now at uh, Karlsruhe in Germany. Um, uh, it's bad enough uh, for Chinese uh, people having to learn English, but having to learn German as well. Uh, but uh, Atar Hussein just told me that he went to, was invited to study in France when he didn't speak a word of it, but <laughs> soon learnt it. So um, we welcome Dr. Zhang Jin.
Thank you, Professor Pirshot. Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, sorry. Uh, today, I want to share with you the housing policy and finance for the poor. And um, I, I noticed most of our audience today is from Chinese. So we're also most familiar. There are old three mountains on the shoulder of Chinese uh, in the feudalism society. And now in the urban society, we also say there are new three uh, mountains in the shoulder, on the shoulder of Chinese people. The uh, medical... Uh, the medical expenses, the education expenses, and also the housing expenses. So what's happened in China and what's the reason for the high, uh, high housing burden in China? This is what I want to share with you. And firstly, I want to introduce a little bit about the background of the Chinese housing policy. China is a typical character of the dual economic structure, rural urban divided. The two societies, um, in terms of the uh, economic structure and the social structure, is totally different. In rural areas, the homestead is uh, located by the rural collective organization. In planned society, we also call it the commune, if you know. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, all of the resources are governed by the commune, and they will allocate uh, the land to the farmers, and they build it, uh, the houses themselves. But in rural areas, before the 1980s, the urban housing was treated merely as a, uh, as a component of the social welfare and provided by the work units. Um, because the salary of that period is very lower, so the housing is kind of a compensation for their lower salary. It's just like a plan, it's just as the planned economy in that period. Uh, so the location of the low-ranking housing was one of the main pillars of work union socialism. Uh, but after the 1990s, there were so many problems are, 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 uh, generated. You know, the shortage, the economic shortage that uh, raised by a Nobel Prize, the Kernai, uh, Professor Kernai. The, because you have to wait for a long time when allocated for housing, and uh, even you, you have the housing is deteriorating, and the people don't have incentives to, to invest in their housing. So uh, after the 1990s, the central government uh, terminated the in-kind distribution and uh, gave subsidy to their uh, employees or uh, the civil servants and asked them to buy the housing from the market. And at the same time, you know, it's a quick speed of the marketization in China. So this is uh, uh, in the same time, happened in the same time. So you can see a big shift after 1996. Before 1996, the public poverty housing is the mailer, is uh, the main style in China. But after 1996, the private property is increasing. Until 2010, about 80% is in the housing market is the private housing ownership, and only 20% is the other kind of ownership. And but the same time, you can see the equity is also increasing in China. Especially, you know, the housing prices is escalating very quickly in China. And um, uh, some people maybe take housing as a speculative or uh, a virus accumulation. So you can see some people have the second ownership or the third ownership. If you compare the ownership spaces, the gap is even larger. You can see it's about two times between the highest contail to the lowest contail. 
And if, uh, there are some figures here. From 2003 to 2010, the urban housing price increased about 115 nationwide. And the uh, international standard, the, uh, the price to income ratio is 5 to 1. But in some big cities like Peking, Shanghai, the price to income ratio is about 10, or even larger than 10. Um, so my topic today, mainly topic today, is how the development of the housing security program considering large housing equity. And the second, what the causes of this efficient housing policy performance in China. The first, uh, there is a picture, a big uh, fr uh, uh, framework in China. The first tire, the t there are three top, uh, tires in China. The top tire is the private commodity housing. I think it's very familiar in the developed countries. The middle tire is the economic affordable housing, and we also has um, uh, public provided housing, Gong uh, Jin. The lowest tire is the low renting housing uh, programs. Uh, today, I want to, uh, the, the, I don't want to talk about the prevented commodity housing. It's a housing market problems, and I, I also mainly talk about the middle tier and the lowest tier. And the economic affordable housing is implemented from 1990s. It's mainly targeting on the middle and lowest income population. Uh, it's targeting on ownership, and the local government. Um, outsourced these programs to some real estate developers and to share burden with the real estate developers. And the real uh, estate developers will give um, a, a housing limit, is a housing ceiling for these uh, low-income populations. And the, provided, uh, uh, the public provided housing, Gong Jin, is uh, bring from the Singapore. It's uh, salary-based. The employee and the employer both contribute a percentage of their salary to the public provided fund. And then when the employee wants to buy housing, they can use this, uh, this fund. But during the past 10 years, this kind of uh, public housing schemes are also work very well. The first lay, all of the social instruments, uh, because the China uh, are market-oriented system, uh, the government take economic development as the primary priority. So the social welfare programs are underdeveloped, just like Fang Yijie has talked a little bit. Uh, so the ECH, Economic Confirmable Housing, and the uh, Housing Provided Fund programs, they are set up to um, improve the housing affordability. It's targeting our ownership. But you know, if you want to buy a housing, you have the minimum income. Uh, there is three hope. Uh, if you don't buy that housing, you can't benefit from these two programs. And the economic cheap renting housing is just, um, uh, I think it's from 1997 after that period. Basically, it should be designed for the low-income population. But um, economic affordable housing, but you know, in 2008, it's just the word uh, financial crisis. And most uh, local governments want to use as an instrument to stimulate economy. So actually, the targeting group has some mislocated. Some people are well, are well, or the rich population also benefit from these programs. The third is the cheap renting housing. Because you know there is a large population, migrant population from the rural to urban. They are excluded, excluded from the housing because it's uh, governed by the local governments. And the local governments only cover the budget 
uh, only covered the local residents, so the migrants are excluded. And I want to talk about it, uh, the reason. The first, the decentralization of the governance. You know, uh, after 1994, the central government shared uh, it's a tax, it's a big tax reform. The central government share 53% of the total tax revenue, and then the 40% is belong to the local governments. But the local governments are responsible for most of the uh, local infrastructure or welfare schemes. Uh, but where are their funds from? But where are their budget? In China, maybe uh, most of them can you can know the background of China. The land is belonging. The land property is belonging to the local governments, and uh, they are the sole providers of land in cities. In China, there are two kind of uh, user of land: the rural land and the construction land. Only the local governments has authority can change the use usage of the land. If you want to construct housing, you have to change the usage first. So uh, the local government has monopoly power on land expropriation, and this has become the extra budgetary resources. So you can see from, from figures from 1999 through 2008, the percentage of land transfer fees in local budgetary revenue increased from 9% to 43%. It's less than 50, but nearly 50% of their budget is from the land leasing fees. Uh, just because of these reasons, so the targets from uh, between the central and the local governments are inconsistent, consistent in some cases. The local governments are reluctant to allocate land to social housing because they worry about the public, the housing will crawl out of market rate housing. And thus, they decrease local, because if they're, uh, de uh, they were decrease the local government revenue. And second, the, uh, this is the local government favor leasing land to attractive investment for some manufacturers because this will increasing their tax revenue. This is the most important reason, and this is also the reason why the social housing are under supply, uh, and as well as the least mismatch of the tightening groups. I just talk about the ECH, economic and affordable housing are sometimes are mismatched. This is also the basic, basic reason. And the third is a very important uh, system, the hukou system. It's, uh, in, in English, is household registration, but it's totally different household registration here because the hukou is bonded with the welfare, what you can get accessible. Hukou um, in China was used for status identification, and most social welfare are uh, just identified by a hukou status. If the, you are urban local residents, maybe you are covered by some local uh, welfare schemes, but if you are migrants, this is, you, you are excluded. Even though, just Fang uh, Lijie uh, has told, there is a new direction after a harmonious society. But the central government abolished the, because it, plan, uh, it abolished the plan economy. But the hukou system still um, a, a significant factor in housing provision, such as I talked about the migration is now covered. So this is our most important problems. Here I take an example. Uh, we have a pilot in a small county near Shanghai. There are local residents about. 500,000, and outside migrants are about 
420. Uh, because the local government, uh, their budget is not very much, so they all they are only wants to cover the housing, especially the low uh, low income housing schemes, only cover the local residents. They want, don't want to share this um, local budgets to extend it, their uh, local uh, the low income housing to the migrants, uh, because their tax revenue. It's um, not that much. So th this is a sensible reason for the local governments. So how to meet the housing demand of the low-income population? I mean, in what ways, using what policy, the government ca uh, can make uh, housing policy public accountable in, in the background of Chinese? Uh, here, I also cited um, where we're known Social, social policy professor called Solomon Abigail. Uh, he talked about enabling society. This has given me so many uh, aspirations because he taught enabling society means a multiplicity of actors in housing sector. For if there are only one actor, there would be no one to be enabled, which will lead to government failure in the end. Because I uh, just a um, professor told. Uh, I was uh, worked as a postdoctor in Germany. The German housing policy is very um, is very decentralized, and many uh, actors are involved in the housing policy, such as the public housing company, the housing cooperatives, uh, the tenants corporation, uh, the tenants corporation, or the landlords corporation. They have their different demands, requirements, but they can discuss and negotiation. So the German housing policy is balanced to some extent. So, oh sorry. Uh, so this is the last uh, implication to China. You know what I talk about? The tax system needs to be reformed to give local governments a large share of budgetary revenue and allow them to have more diverse local revenue source other than the land convenience phase. The second hukou system is very a big hamper the Chinese development. So they need to reform to guarantee the migrants enjoy the same rights to housing and other welfare benefits in cities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now we go on to Dr. Wei Yang, who's uh, at the University of uh, Kent at Canterbury, and uh, she'll be talking about long-term care and uh, addressing some of the consequences of the aging population yes. that uh, Dr. Ligier mentioned. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Wei Yang. I work for University of Kent as a health economist. So today I'm going to talk about funding institutional long-term care for the elderly in China. So people here, people now in China today are actually living an incredibly long life. The life expectancy at birth is around 77 years old. And in big cities in, such as Beijing and Shanghai, life expectancy at birth is around 81 years old. So that age is actually very close to many of the developed countries. For example, UK, life expectancy at birth is around 84 years old. If we look at the population structure, I plotted these two graphs um, using the World Bank data. The left one is the um, population structure in 2010. You will see the y-axis as the age group, and it's the number of um, population each age group, group in each age group and divided by um, the different gender. 
And right, right hand side is the population structure in 2050. And you can see in less than 50 years' time, the population structure is moving, going to move upwards. So I'll give you some figures. The median age in 2010 in China is around 34 years old. And this is already very close to America. So the median age in America is 37 years old in 2010. But when we go to 2050, the median age in China is going to reach to 46 years old. And that age will exceed Europe and the United States. So um, this means we're actually living longer and longer. Is it a good thing that we are living longer? Good thing or bad thing? Of course it's a good thing to actually, you know, living longer. But on the other hand, if we have a big aging population, old age is always associated with various health um, problems. And if you have health problems, this may put some pressure on our health and social care services. So now, this, these slides I'm going to talk about whether our old population in China is actually healthy or not. There's um, this um, measure of activity daily activities of daily living, which is commonly used by many demographers and also um, long-term care, long care researchers. This is actually an indicator of the ability of older people um, performing very basic daily um, life activities, such as are you able to feed yourself, are you able to dress yourself and go to the toilet by yourself and blah, blah, blah. So if you have one item of ADL, activity daily living, you're considered as having some kind of long-term care limitations. And if you have more than three um, ADLs, you're considered, um, you considered as having substantial or critical long-term care needs. So um, the 2010 China Longitudinal Aging Survey, which was conducted by the China National Committee on Aging, actually found that approximately 9.7 million of urban, urban elderly has reported um, of having more than one limitation in ADL. That accounts for 12% of the old, urban uh, old people. And in rural areas, that situation is even more critical. We have 18.5 million of rural elderly would report more than one limitation of ADL. That accounts for 18% of the rural elderly. And that figure was basically um, verified by another um, national representative survey. So, um, before I go on to talk about the rest of the presentation, I'm going to say a little bit about long-term care. So, the care that old people need is actually very different from the care that the hospital offers. So, for the hospital care, it's very immediate, and usually it lasts a very short period of time, and the aim is to restore your health. But long-term care is a bit different. The care is actually provided um, in order to help the old people to do some daily activity livings, to feed themselves, to dress themselves, and this kind of care. And that care can last a very long time, maybe until the last minute of this person's life. They would need some assistance. And that care may not be able to restore the person's health. And in many cases, the person's health may just, you know, deteriorate as time passes. Okay. So, 
if we have an aging population and we have, you know, very high demand of health and long-term care, so who are we able to afford um, to pay those care? Or are we able to provide those care to our older people? Um, I'll talk about four key drivers of long-term care expenditures in the future, and I hope um, after I go you know, one by one of these key drivers, we will be able to have a more clear idea if we're able to afford the long-term care. So the first key driver is number of older people and demand of long-term care, which I already said. The second one is age dependency ratio. So age dependency ratio is actually the number of people aged 65 and above divided the number of people of working age, which is uh, between 15 to 65. So basically, it's how many old people in relation to um, the, working, the working population. So why do we need to care about age dependency ratio? In countries such as China, where most of the health uh, long-term care finance is still associated with the um, social health insurance. If, so we, this means that the money that we use to pay for the care for the old people is actually drawn from the social health insurance pool, while the working population, the healthy working population, is actually making the contrib contribution. If we have a very small working population where we have a very large old population, this kind of insurance pool may not be sustainable in the future. So again, I plot, plot these two charts um, using the data from World Bank's Office of Statistics of China. The left one is um, the age dependency ratio of China and also our neighbors. You can actually see the ratio is, um, ratio is 12%, 12%. This is higher than our neighbor this is higher than uh, Philippines, higher than Malaysia, higher than India, higher than Vietnam. We're actually very close to Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong City, that side. Well, I don't really like the World Bank data because they are using the age as age, 50, uh, age 65 as the threshold. But the retirement age in China is actually 55 for the woman and 60 for the, for the men. If I replot the data again, you can see actually the, uh, the age dependency ratio goes up to 20%. This is, we are already, this ratio is actually higher than Korean, higher than Singapore, and higher than Hong Kong. So um, this means every one old people, we have five working, working people. Um, okay, the third drive, the availability of, the availability of informal care. Why do we care about informal care? If we live in a society, the tradition is to provide the long-term care to the um, to the parents, like children provide care to the parents. Then we don't. Then this means the responsibility of the society or the government um, to provide care to the old people would be reduced. So, are we still having this kind of tradition? I think it's a very difficult question to answer. So in rural areas, if you attend the panels um, in the morning, you probably know we have those. Um, um, left behind um, elderly people and children, and we have this concept of a hollow village, which means in the village you, you largely you see the grandparents and with the little children. Well, the working um, working age population probably will go to the big cities um, to work, and this means they are geographically distant from their families. Um, and in old uh, in urban areas, you have those four to one family structure. You have four grandparents two working uh, adults and one children. So the two working adults has to provide care to the, 
children to a kid and also has to provide care to four born parents, uh, four parents, which is quite difficult. And um, you can see uh, the pattern, pattern of living alone has increased. So in 2011, uh, the percentage of old people living alone actually goes up to 50%. So half of the old population is actually living by themselves. If you are not living with your children, how can you actually receive informal care provided from them? So people then ask, can we actually rely on home and community um, long-term care? Well, well, I wouldn't say this is not um, this is not existent. In, in cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou, you probably will see this kind of home and community care. But the majority, uh, the majority of the Chinese um, regions or cities are rural areas, and it is very impractical to provide home or community-based long-term care because um, you don't have the physical infrastructures to actually develop this kind of program. Now we only now we go to the um, institutional long-term care facilities. So this is the choice that we have now. Um, currently, we have three types of long-term care facilities in China. The first one is residential facilities, uh, directly translated from the Chinese. It's elderly care welfare institutions. You probably know what it is. Um, it provides very basic care. Um, just to assist the daily um, activity living of the, old, uh, of the old people. The second type is called nursing long-term care facility. That facility will offer specialized long-term care um, to the old people, so this is more advanced. The third type is acute long-term care facilities, which is, all, uh, usually, uh, uh, which is usually located in an acute hospital uh, unit. Okay, so can we actually afford to, to pay for the institutional good, uh, institutional care? Now I need to talk about unit cost. Um, unlike in uh, unlike in England, uh, the NHS will have a validated unit cost you can refer to, so you sort of knows how much cost a weeks of care, would, uh, how much a weeks of care would cost roughly. But in China, we don't really have that um, standard unit cost. But I can give you some examples. Um, this is largely the field work done by Lijie's team. Um, so this is Qingdao City, and example A, this is nursing care facility, which is specialized long-term care facility. Um, depending on what kind of room you are in, you are expected to pay around 3,900 to 5,100 RMB per month for your care. Okay. And if you go down to residential care facility, which is more the elderly uh, welfare institutions, you're expected to pay 900 to 12. Uh, if it's a public, you're expected to pay 900 to 1400 um, RMB per month. And if it's private, it's going to be more expensive. So let's keep that figure in mind. And um, so the, I'll show you some examples in Shanghai. So in Shanghai, again, the nursing care facility, you, the uh, month's cost is going to be 3,800 to 1,500 IMD. And if you go to the welfare, um, welfare institutions, um, you are expected to pay 1,300 to, uh, 1300 to 1,300 per month. Do you think it's expensive? I think it is actually very expensive. Why? Because the average pension in China is around... 1300 uh, um, a month. So the, the cost, the cost that they charge to going to institutional care is actually way higher 
than the average pension. So do we have any public financing schemes? Yes, we do. Currently, we have four models. One is we go, go, for, go through the social health insurance scheme. Um, the other one is go through the social long-term care nursing insurance scheme. For that scheme, we only um, only one one um, city, which is Qingdao, is part of that scheme. So other other places in China, we don't have that. Or we can pay out of pocket, and there's the fourth model, which is subsidizing the providers through tax basis. Okay, so let's look at the case study again. So the, in the Qingdao case, if you are covered by the Qingdao long-term care insurance. Not everyone is eligible. Your the reduction is quite high. So for nursing care A, the reduction is 39. You you are you were supposed to pay, pay um, 3900. Now you only pay 390 IMB. So it's 90% of reduction. And if you go to the residential care facility, it's 96% of the reduction. Okay. So then the payment is going to be less than 100. This, is, this makes a big difference for the, for the people um, in Qingdao. And, okay, in Shanghai, what's the scenario? So in Shanghai, it depends on what kind of um, social health insurance scheme you are, uh, you are in. If you are in the urban insurance scheme, which means that, urban employee insurance scheme, which means that you, you have worked before, when you retire, the reduction is 90, uh, 92% of reduction. And you, you are urban people, you haven't worked before, you go to the second rank, which is urban riding scheme, 80% of reduction. And if you are rural people, you have 70% of the reduction. Let's just look at, if you are urban employee, the out-of-pocket payment is actually very low. And your pension is around 3,000 um, IMB months. You are able to pay for yourself. But if you are very unfortunate in the second or third category, your reimbursement rate is high, uh, is, uh, low, is lower, and your out-of-pocket payment is higher, or your pension is only around 700 to 800 IMB per month. So you are not able to pay for the care that you want unless you, you have um, your children to pay for you. Um, so is it equal? The, the question goes to, is care equally funded? No. Even the case in Qingdao, that long-term care insurance only are only covering people in urban areas. So if you are rural areas, you are not eligible to be covered. So basically, you have to pay um, a high amount of money compared, to, compared to, to the urban people. And in Shanghai, it is the same. If you are very lucky, urban employee insurance schemes that you are able to fund yourself, and if you are not lucky, then um, you haven't worked before, you are rural people, you have to pay the, you are not able to afford um, such care, or you just pay out of Okay, last slide, I promise. So what's the option um, for the future? Um, shall we go for the main testing method like UK? Or we go for, for a tax-based method like most of Scandinavia country? Or we develop the long-term care insurance, which Qingdao has developed, and Shanghai is thinking of developing? Um, I think it's a very difficult question to answer, because you have to bear in mind China is a very big country, and um, there's fragmentations across different, different funding sources, and um, long-term care policy is, always, is often very decentralized. The different, not, in, not unlike healthcare, we have a uniform healthcare system in China, but long-term care, every province, every government is doing differently. And um, 
In different areas, different services are covered by this insurance, but in other areas, this same service is not covered by this kind of insurance. So it's it's a very it's a very complicated um, scenario. So I think I'm here um, not to providing not to provide you a single best solution, but rather to um, present you the current scenario and to identify some problems. And by doing this, I hope um, we're able to make a small contribution um, to a better design of the long-term care financing system in China. Thank you very much for those three presentations. Now we've got three commentators, and uh, I'm going to start with Atar and then Jerry and Lee. Um, Atar's only been at LSE for 27 years, so he's a, he's a newcomer. So how much time do I have? Well, five minutes. Okay, five minutes. So I've got five minutes, so I'll make only two points. One is really consider the role of social policy when there's mobility of population and labor. And the second, I, I talk about some aspects of aging problems, especially relative to the position of men and women. So mobility of population, there are two ways of identifying people. In a, in a country, in a population where people do not migrate, in most cases people are, die where they are born, really the usual question to establish identity is where do you come from? And, but in a mobile society, that's an irrelevant question because people are constantly moving. So the question then depends on where are you? So in a mobile society, the rights depend on where the person is, while in an immobile society, it depends on where the person originates from. So one problem with Chinese social policy is that traditional social control in China, or ways of governing population, are very much based on the assumption of immobile population. So on the other hand, the society has changed and people have become mobile. So the question in China is, Nishan Arlaida, so your origin is very important. While in the United States, the question is, where do you come from? In terms of origin, it's not very interesting. It's actually where you are, your rights depend on. So I said, if you look at the European Union, uh, question of social rights and social welfare rights, they depend on where the person is, not where the person comes from. But traditionally, it's still social policy in China is based on a question of where the person comes from. And that really always creates the problem of people are not entitled to social services or public goods where they working. The second question I want to take is question of aging. Aging population does not just depend on the aging rise in the ratio of the elderly relative to the whole population. The whole population ages. So if you look at the labor force of China, the average age of person in the labor force is also increasing. So the proportion of older workers is much higher than proportion of younger workers. Does that have implications for social policy? We know from market economy is that unemployment spells for older workers tend to be much higher than for younger workers. 
And in China, you see that a person, a male laborer, not very highly educated, if he becomes unemployed past age of 45, the chances of finding work are very, very small. So similarly for women, it's much earlier. The women age 35 or 40, the problem of unemployment becomes more serious. So what I want to draw attention to, that with the aging of the labor force, the question of long-term employment actually becomes important in China. The second thing I want to mention about aging, that if you look at China's population, the China and India are two exceptions in the world, where the proportion of women in the total population of females is actually smaller than proportion of males, while in the rest of the world is always the other way around. That is, proportion of females is higher than proportion of males. So the two world's two most populous countries actually buck the usual trend. And so if you look at age, how the gender composition changes with age, if you look at birth rate, the proportion of males in China is higher than proportion of females. But as the population gets older, the proportion of females actually increases. So if you look at past age 65, the proportion of women in every age group is higher than proportion of men. So what does that mean about aging? Aging would mean that as Chinese society ages, with the increase in proportion of the elderly, aging problem would increasingly become a feminine problem. So and especially the higher the average age of the elderly, the higher the proportion of women. So if you look at age 80 and over, which actually requires quite a lot of personal care, the proportion of women is much higher. So here there is a problem which in a complements young ways discussion is that um, what we find that the Chinese society ages, proportion of women among elderly will rise. But it has an implication that is proportion of the elderly who would require personal assistance or services would also rise. As it happens that in in home context, most of the personal services are actually provided by women. So women would be more important in terms of demander of personal services, but they're also the ones who provide most of the services. So this is like what is called a vicious circle. That is, you cannot solve the problem, aging problem has an important gender dimension to it. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome Gerald Bloom from IDS in Sussex, who's worked extensively in China and has five well, minutes. Five minutes I will try. Well, first, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and, and to meet you. Um, and thank you for three very excellent papers. And I think one thing they made very clear is how quickly things are changing and how quickly the pressure on families is growing because they're migrants, because they're aging, because they have health problems. So there's a lot of problems that families are facing and a lot of pressure on the government to try to solve it. And what we heard mostly is inevitably, as it with most governments, the first step was to look at a way of helping with the financing. And so it's clear that government has put more money 
into the social sector and into these problems, as well as insurance. So there's more money. It's been in response to pressure, particularly to have a more inclusive development. And there clearly has been more spending on these services, including for quite poor people. But the costs have also been going up. And I think I want to, from my experience in health, just talk about a couple thoughts about what are the implications of this very rapidly rising demand for services, this increasing availability of finance for services, but without a very well-organized sector for supplying the services. So for, I mean, just a couple thoughts about it. With this increased demand, as you can imagine, there are going to be many, many, many people, many of them women, who will be in jobs that didn't exist. And they're having to enter the market quite quickly. Now, I saw this in health, where for quite a time there's a shortage of doctors in rural areas, there's an expansion in colleges, there isn't such a shortage, but those young doctors are coming into facilities where there are no senior role models. They have to learn the skills, and they have to learn the values and the ethics of what they're doing. And I've had personal experience of seeing what's happening on the care sector, where essentially unskilled migrants are used as carers for the elderly without any particular skills or training. So there's a need to create a whole new workforce with the, val the training that's appropriate, the values that are appropriate, and the supervision that's appropriate. Then we heard from Famije the degree to which the number of service providers is growing. Are they going to be government? Are they going to be NGOs or, or commercial and private? They're all expanding, but it's very vague what their legal status is, what are their roles, what is their management, what is ethically appropriate, and what isn't appropriate. So there's a real issue about how do we get organizations that function as people want them to, even if the money is there. Then there's the big issue of accountability. Now, I work in health, and I've finally come to the conclusion that the most important health reform of all would be to ensure that every health facility had a standard reporting format on both their finance and expenditure and their performance. In fact, they don't which means, as I guess most of you who work in China know, the degree that there is gaming by all organizations and facilities. Now the question is, why has it been so difficult to get acceptance of a standard format? But without that, a lot of what we're hearing about the increased expenditure can lead to the kind of consequences we can all imagine. Um, so there's a real issue of accountability. Both can government monitor, right now they can't. Can they monitor and uh, assess performance? Is there availability of information? And is there a capacity of, of citizens groups and others to analyze the information and actually influence performance? I think what comes out of this is as the social sector rises, there are enormous questions of how do you create a social service sector that's fit for purpose and how do you create both the institutions to enable it to be accountable and for people to monitor it. And I guess what we come out of it is the need in the next phase. People are talking about rules-based development. Clearly laws are important and new forms of civil society, including possibly, again, professions or, or trade associations who can help government and citizens ensure performance is effective and a good quality. And I think those are many of the big challenges that are going to emerge as this demand for services rises. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. For, for last commentary, we welcome Mr. Liu Liao, who's a graduate of Tsinghua and uh, Cambridge University and uh, 
uh, chairs, Capital Next Group, but uh, also um, much concerned with the third sector and chairman of the China Next Foundation. Thanks very much, David. Thanks. Thanks very much. I, I want to, I'm a practitioner of, of China's social development. Uh, in China Next Foundation, we sponsor 22 charities to this day in China who does uh, regular you know, charity work you do. And we, we sponsor this team of uh, very talented young men and women, just like yourselves, uh, doing the ground work in there. So I guess we, uh, we, I'll bring today a, a sort of practitioner's point of view how, how social problems are solved and, and are going to be solved in the future. I guess the three, three academia today um, brought us uh, in three different angles uh, about the challenges we will face in China. Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Fang talked about social development and social policy change, and there are two very big issues within that framework, which is social housing and uh, elderly care. Um, but I want to highlight to you all that uh, social problems are not limited to these two big problems. We have all three, all problems dealing with disabled people, education, uh, uh, illness, uh, social insurance, etc., and etc. And but what, how do we understand the, the scope of change? Um, I guess we have to put China in the key to solve the issue is to understand that all the social problems happens. In the, in, the, in the background of a grand social modernization, i.e. the world's most populous country, or one-fifth of the population, is transforming uh, from a, a, a people of being taken care of to a people that are going to take care of themselves. I would say in, it's, it's in the first time in Chinese history that the, the society, and uh, not the government, not the emperor, not, uh, not a family leader, are going to take care of themselves. They will learn how to how to how to do this. I guess it's the key to understand this is to to understand that everything happens in the in in, in the in the uh, grand social transformation. And it is in this development we, we it is probably the first time in our history that we have the need for social housing, the need for elderly care, the need for social insurance, and and so on. And, uh, and the second point I wish to make is that, uh, um, as you guys probably see, there are no right answers to social problems, and because those problems are very, very complex. They are far more complex than scientific problems um, because there are no right answers. And even in the very developed country, like in UK, UK and, uh, and in Germany and in US, the debates are going on forever. Uh, it seems that we will never achieve a perfect solution to, to, the, to the basic needs of human beings. Uh, and that's, I guess that's why the doctors in here said that they are all open questions and there are no right answers. Um, lastly, I want to say, um, so how do, we, how do we tackle this? How do we, as, as modern Chinese or as, as modern international help, how, how can we help? How do we make a breakthrough? Uh, that, is a, that is a question later before us. And I, I would point just two leads uh, to that. Unfortunately, uh, China is not the first country in this world that has happened uh, where social transformation has happened. We are fortunately about 150 or 200 years behind in countries like the UK or the US. So there are huge lessons to be drawn from, and, uh, and there are, there are uh, experiences that we can learn. And, and also, we can also learn from China's own history, i.e. what happened in the economic sector, not in the social sector. Back in the 1980s, 
And it was also a daunting task to transform all the state-owned enterprises. They were big, they were inefficient, they were, they were, they were basically not producing money, they are value destroyers. But how did, we, how did China develop from that age to what we have today? We have a very vibrant private sector now. We have some of the most competitive companies in the world. And a lot, a lot of lessons can be, can be learned from this process. Uh, and finally, I would, um, I would encourage everybody here to join the process. I mean, it's not just that we have a moral duty to do to, to social development. Those are huge, huge personal opportunities. You are talking about a joint force to today. Today, um, I, I, I spoke last year about, uh, about, uh, about young people's opportunities in here. You, are, you will be joining force to create some of the most uh, 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 great social organizations in the world's most populous country in the next 20, 30 years. Um, you, will be, you, will be, uh, you will be tackling some of the world's most difficult social care problems and social housing problems. Um, and uh, uh, those are huge challenges, but, uh, but if you have a heart in there, uh, I would encourage you to join the schoolers here and join us to, to extend your helping hands. Um, I guess I, I'm not an academia, so there's no theory framework for me to speak of. Uh, I would say, uh, let's do it together as a, as a practitioner, as young people. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for those three uh, timely and time-keeping um, comments. Um, we've got about 15 minutes for questions to anyone uh, up here. Um, uh, so please, uh, um, there's a question from the lady in the third row. I don't know, can you speak up? There may be a there's a microphone just coming. Thank you very much for such an informative and interesting session. Um, I have a question concerning the role of government in social policies in China. Um, because uh, my understanding is given China's uh, political and economic model, uh, there's really nothing fundamental that's going to happen with the social transformation unless there's a change in the role of government. And um, Professor Fang mentioned there's something about the transition of uh, government's role from administrative dominate to uh, service. Dominated role. And um, traditionally, this kind of a transformation is going in line with uh, economic reform. So, uh, economy is turning into a service based market economy, and the role of government is shrinking back. Um, I want to ask that um, for Chinese government's role to change from administration to service based, um, are the drivers and requirements in the economic system existing? in contemporary China, okay. and if yep. there isn't, what's the, what's the challenges? Thank you very much. Who would like to uh, address that? Atta. Uh, <laughs> can, can you get the microphone here? here. Okay, I, I take care and well, I speculate about the change of the government. In some sense, if you actually see, there are obviously no, no country in the world where you say there are no limitations on change. There are limitations on change which can take place in the United 
United Kingdom. So there are obviously some restrictions on what change can happen in China. But on the other hand, for the last 30 years, we have seen that there has been quite an important change in the role of the government. And also, not only the role of the government, but also the position of the ordinary citizens via the government. You know, in some sense, China may not have all the human rights which exist in European economies or in the United States, but nobody can deny that there has been a huge change over the last 30 years in terms of what citizens can do and what exercises they can exercise. So I would say that some change towards what is called service and provision that government should become more used to providing services rather than providing administering population is possible in China. And in some sense, it will not be uniform, that will be different in different areas. But I would not say that the potential for reform in China seems to me you know, many, significantly less than what we find in other developing countries. So, okay. so that's Chia. what I'm able to say. Thank you. Did, oh, oh, did you oh. want to? Yeah. Um. Okay. Okay. Uh, just a short reply. And uh, I think you mentioned the, the, the motive of this change, right? Uh, I think both economic and uh, consideration of the um, stability of the society. Um, because the, the change happens around the, the, the first several years of uh, 21st century. And um, uh, from the economic side, it, the, the, the uh, improvement of uh, rural residents' income will, um, how to say, inspire the, the, the whole economy of the, the, the whole country. Uh, on, the other hand, on the other hand, and uh, the gap between uh, urban residents and the, 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 gap, the income gap between urban residents and rural residents just bigger and bigger, uh, which makes this society not so, yeah, there's a risk of the um, stability. So that's both motive the, the government to change. Okay, let, let's see um, this question right at the front. We'll have one more question. So, there may be two. Um, I, I know we're, we're, I've been told we're out of time, but right at the back, the lady there. Can you keep the question a bit short? Firstly, because I appreciate all your speaks, those are really helpful. And um, especially for Professor um, uh, at home, um, I've read your um, biography and I know that you've done a lot of research regarding China as well as the social reform. And I'm, I, I, I'm quite interested uh, in one of the sentences you said is that um, we should regard people as who they are rather than where they come from. And uh, you should have known that there's like hukou kind of thing in China, which regard people as where they come from rather than who they are. And it is kind of thing that restrict Chinese labor force as well as all the Chinese students who want to seek these studies elsewhere in China. 
So how do you think of this policy and how do you think that this problem could be solved in future? Ultimately, the goal has to be, like I take example of the European Union, which is not a model in everything, but for example, in the European Union, your social welfare rights depend on where you are, not where do you come from. So in some sense, if a person from a, a relatively poor a southern European country is in Germany or Scandinavia, their welfare rights do not come, depend on where they come from but they are actually where they are. And so China, it always depends on where do you come from. So ultimately, the way to adjust to the mobility of labor and population is really to shift from the question of origin to where you actually are. And that to say that your rights depend on where you are, not depends on where you're originally from. Okay, we get one very quick last no, question. Sorry, no, more no, 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 one more. We could, um, the, the gentleman there, quick, quick. <laughs> we have... Hi, there. Uh, thank you very much. Very quick uh, question. You, you've all talked about the different actors in China and how they're trying to develop uh, different su uh, supplies for social policy in regards of the industry. But what about foreign actors? Because governments, uh, uh, national as well, have restricted investments and trade of, for example, medical supplies, investments in education. And there's still a very, very big barrier for foreign investments to increase domestic, like Chinese supply of insurance uh, plans, etc. So what are these, why are these barriers in place? Why is there still a dissentive for foreign uh, investors to help Chinese consumers? Mr. Liao, would you like to tackle that? Sorry, is the question, why the barriers to foreign investment in the social sector? Because we want to prevent uh, foreign influence to our socialist and with Chinese characters. <laughs> Does that help your question? Okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you can discuss that later. I'm afraid we've got to stop.